So a few weeks ago, uh, one of my friends told me his testimony for the first time, and I'll share just a snippet of it this morning. Uh, Due to some circumstances outside of his control, when he was a teenager, he had to learn how to choose his thoughts. So he was in this spot where he had all of these emotions, all of these thoughts, and he recognized that those could not be trusted necessarily for what they were, for what they were telling him. He had to develop the ability to discern what's true, what's false. He had to learn how to do this work on the inside of all of us that uh, as you grow up, um, you have to face this. Sometimes what I'm feeling is just not true. What I'm thinking is just not in line with reality. And Jesus talked quite a bit about doing that type of inside work. In fact, in Matthew 7, he, he, he talks about it in light of false teachers. And we're studying the book of Jude, like John mentioned, which is a book written uh, because there were false teachers, there were deceitful men who infiltrated the church. So look at what Jesus said in Matthew 7. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. So they look like sheep, but they're really wolves. He said, you'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are figs figs gathered from thistles, are they? So every tree produces good good fruit, but the, the bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. So if you're a good tree, you'll produce good fruit. It's a pretty clear teaching, right? So what's in common between Jesus' teaching and my friend's story is this truth that actions come from within. What we do on the outside, it flows out of who we are on the inside. And it's, it's also true that our doing, what we do on the outside, it impacts who we are on the inside. But that's kind of another uh, message for another day. So we're going to focus today on how our doing comes from our being. It comes from our thinking and our, our thinking comes from our being. So that's what we're going to see in our passage today, that what we do on the outside, it comes from what's going on inside of us and ultimately who we really are. So let's read our passage. It's Jude verses 14 through 19. And Jude writes, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, these false teachers who had infiltrated the church. And he says, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own, desi- their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. So before we unpack this passage, I want to give you our apologetic of the week. As we've gone through the book of Jude, we've looked at a certain reason uh, that we can trust our faith, that we can trust Christ. Apologetic is simply giving a reasonable defense for a position that you hold. So Christian apologetics means giving a reason for the hope that we have. And when, if you were to read this, this passage in light of the rest of the Bible, which is how we should read the Bible, 
you'll recognize, oh, I've heard of Enoch, but I don't recognize what Enoch said in this passage. I don't recognize this quotation that Jude uses. And that's because it's not in the Bible, other than the book of Jude. <laughs> you won't find it in the Old Testament. And so, if you're kind of a skeptical person like me, um, you'll wonder, or it might, it might raise the question for you or for other people, well, can we trust the Bible? Is the Bible true? Is it reliable? And there are a lot of good answers to that, like sermon series worth of answers. But I want to get this morning at the question behind the question. So this is our apologetic. Uh, if you're asking, can the Bi- is, is the Bible trustworthy? The real question that you're asking behind that is, how can you know anything at all? How can you know what you know? And that is a question that epistemology seeks to answer. That's a study, or that's a branch of philosophy that studies knowledge. And epistemology has... It puts forth five major ways of knowing. So you can know through rationalism, which is like, oh, it makes sense, it's logical, therefore it's true, therefore we can know it. You can know through empiricism, which is like observation and experimentation. It's empirically proven. Pragmatism says you can know because stuff works. If it works, then you know. And then authority, well, These people, these wise men, these wise women, they say it's true, therefore it's true. But the fifth way of knowing is revelation, which revelation just means that God makes something known that otherwise we couldn't know. And that's what the Bible is. It's revelation. But revelation is not detached or separated from the others. And the Christian worldview says that revelation is the first way of knowing, but it's not opposed to rationalism, empiricism, pragmatism, and authority in their proper places, in their proper relationship with revelation. So it's it's pretty common in interacting with people today who don't hold to a belief in Christ as Lord that they would say, well, we know things because of the scientific method. But what's ironic is the scientific method uses four of those, but it doesn't use... Revelation, and, and I find that ironic because the, the modern scientific method as we know it, modern science, it came out of a Judeo-Christian worldview. It used the presuppositions that we find in Revelation from God in order to build a, a way of knowing and discovering things about our world. So all of that to say, faith and science, they are not opposed to each other at all. But if you do not accept revelation as a way of knowing, that just says something about your epistemology, about how you know what you know. And that is that it's based only on what you know and not based on what God knows. So the answer to the question, should you trust the Bible? I mean, it, it's, it's a resounding yes for more reasons than I can tell you today. But I'd encourage you, if you have doubts, or if you're working, if you're, if you're praying for a friend who has doubts about trusting the Bible, have you read it? Let's just start there. You know, if, if you want to get to know if you can trust the God of the Bible or not, read about him. And, and then when you read, you'll have questions. I guarantee it. All of us do. But have you asked your questions? Have you tr- sought to understand? And have you opened yourself up to the possibility of revelation from God as you read it. 
So if you're struggling with this question, there's all sorts of resources to help you. Uh, there's a book by Craig Bloomberg that I've scanned through. It says, can, it's titled, Can We Still Believe the Bible? Uh, I'd, I'd highly recommend that book. But the, the right way to work through this issue is to read the Bible and keep reading it. And then also build out your epistemology, build out your knowledge base with historical evidence, archaeological evidence, scientific evidence. There's all sorts of evidences as to why we can believe the Bible's true. And why Jude references Enoch is not because the whole book of 1 Enoch is true and should be included in the canon, but because this particular portion is true. So let's get back to our passage, which Jude uses Enoch to talk about the coming judgment, to talk about how Jesus is returning to judge every act. And in this passage, we're told what they do, how they think, and who they are. So we'll start with who they are. Jude says they are ungodly sinners, and he says at the end, in verse 19, that they do not have the spirit. So that is, that is the core of, of who these people are that he's referring to. But then he also tells us, because of who they are, this is how they think. They follow their own evil desires and mere natural instincts. And so, because of who they are and how they think, here's what they do. They act in ungodly ways. They grumble. They find fault. They divide people. They speak harshly. And all of this flows from a wrong relationship with God, wrong thinking about God, and then it leads to wrong actions against God. And so, since these actions are done against God, he, the judge, is coming. And so, who the Bible says that we, we don't need to change our behaviors on the outside. We need to be changed first on the inside. Bad trees need to be made good in order to produce good fruit. And nobody is ever born a Christian. Nobody's ever saved because of their good life or their church attendance. The only way to be made new, to be a new creation, is to repent and believe. Repent literally means change your mind. So it's turn away from your way of thinking and trust God's way of thinking. And God's way of thinking is this. He sent his son as Savior and Lord, the one who would forgive your sins and the one who would lead your life. And so in light of the coming judge and in light of the coming judgment, Jude is saying, and God is saying, are you ready? You need to be ready. And he's also offering those who are not ready, here's how you're ready. Repent and believe. That's how you can get ready. So we don't normally do this. This is kind of a unique uh, thing that we're going to do this Sunday. But because of the judgment in this passage and the judgment in the passages we've covered in the last couple weeks, I want to give us an opportunity to repent to respond uh, to the coming judgment <laughs> because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what we're going to do is we're just going to have a moment of silence and uh, if you've already received Christ as your Lord and Savior, then pray for anyone here who hasn't. But before, we, before I offer this prayer of salvation uh, that others can follow along and pray, um, I want to show you exactly what salvation is. Here's exactly what you're being invited to. And I hope you can kind of see this graph on the screen. The line starts on the left. And when, when you're uh, not a Christian, you're a slave to your sin. You're not, you're not saved. 
uh, meaning you are headed to hell, just to be quite frank. And that's what Jude says throughout this book. And we all deserve that. We talked about this in the last couple of weeks. But when you trust in Christ, when you repent and believe for the first time, you go from being a bad tree that bears bad fruit to you're, you're remade, you're a new creation. A good tree that should be producing good fruit. And so that first vertical line is the first time you repent and believe in Christ. And then in between those two lines, it, it's kind of a jagged, jaggedy line up and to the right. That's because our growth in Christ, it's really kind of an up and down experience. But over time, we should be growing up and to the right. We should be becoming more like Jesus. That's a process that's called sanctification. And then when we die or when Christ returns, we're, we're glorified, we're made perfect. And that's the last vertical line on the right. So that's what salvation is. This is what you're being invited into. And so I don't want anyone here to think, I, I want to receive Jesus just so I don't have to go to hell. Um, in order to receive Jesus, it's, it's really you saying, you can have all this world you can have everything else, but I want Jesus more than anything else. So it's not eternal life insurance where it's a get out of hell, you know, type of agreement. It's, it's like, no, I'm dead and I need life. And Jesus is true life. He's abundant life. So let's, let's have a moment to pause in prayer. There's nothing special about the words I'm going to say. But if you have not ever committed your life to following Jesus, uh, here's an opportunity to do it right now. Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need you. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you're alive and that you'll lead me. I commit to following you with all of my life. Amen. So if you prayed that, I'd encourage you to tell someone because uh, that up and to the right, it's a really bumpy road if you don't have people to encourage you along the way. Um, or if you've made that commitment in the past and you've never taken a step of obedience in baptism, like getting baptized to share your commitment to follow Jesus with others, talk to me after the service. We don't believe baptism saves you. We believe Jesus saves you. But Jesus says baptism matters. So there's that. All right, let's get back into the passage. Uh, when you read the list of actions like grumbling and fault finding or following your own desires, you might realize, hey, Christians do those things too. Jude is talking about unbelievers, but when I read this, it's like, hey, that sounds like me. Uh, that sounds like people that I know. And I just got to say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, right? And if you're a Christian, you have everything you need to live a fruitful life. You have everything you need to live faithfully. But in order to do that, our thinking must be changed. Remember, our doing flows from our thinking and what we think flows from who we are. If you've been made a new creation, you're changed fundamentally, but you still have to do battle 
in your mind. You still have to work to change the way that you think. And the Spirit of God works in tandem with us and our choices in order to help us grow. And I see this because right here at this point in the letter, Jude is making a major change in the letter. For the first time, he's actually talking to believers. At the beginning, he says, I'm writing so that you could, would contend for the faith which has been entrusted to you. And then he talks about the men who have come in and the judgment that's coming to them. But now he's saying, but you, beloved. And what, what does he say? But you remember. That's the first thing that he says when it comes to accomplishing his goal of helping them contend for the faith. You have to remember. You have to do some work in your mind in order to act rightly in the midst of the situation that you find yourself. You have to remember. And if they would have remembered this ahead of time, they would have expected it because they've heard this before. Like you can't remember something that you've never heard before. So if they would have remembered, they'd expect it and they'd see what these guys were doing, the divisions that they were causing as a sign of their thinking, that they were just living according to their own desires, which show uh, they, they might be lost. They might have not have the spirit. And the same is true for us today. It's like Judas saying, let God be the framework through which you understand the world. Let him be the framework through which you understand and interpret yourself and the world around you. And that type of shift in your thinking, that, that just doesn't happen overnight. You have to train in order to, to change your thinking, in order to remember. And so for us, training looks like engaging on Sunday mornings. Training looks like participating in small groups. Training looks like staying in touch with your small group people throughout the week. Training looks like quiet times, spending regular time alone with God. And that's not a suggestion, nor is it a condemnation. What I mean is that's really not optional, but it's also not like required, like you're going to lose your salvation if you don't spend time alone with God. The reason we do quiet times is they are intentional internal renovation. They are renovation opportunity in our hearts. That's, that's why we do them. Not just to read our Bible and know what the Bible says, but to let God do some heart renovation in us. That's what quiet times are about. So quiet times won't just happen easily. I've never, personally, I've never found myself accidentally having a quiet time. Wow, I just kind of stumbled into my quiet time. No, if it's a habit for you, it was not accidentally formed. And so your pursuit of God, it's an indicator of your heart. How badly do you really think you need heart renovation? How badly do you want to be in the image of Christ? You want to be formed into his character. So if you're not choosing that right now, and if it doesn't bother you, Ask God to break your heart over that. Ask God, to, so ask God to help you be bothered by it. And if you still don't feel emotionally broken or bothered by it, then just choose to act in line with what you know because you can't always trust your feelings. And this is, if you do this, it's the exact opposite of what the men in Jude were doing, following their own evil desires, following ungodly desires. If you choose to act in line with what you know, it's training. It's training for you to choose God. It's training for godliness. And if you're in the spot where your heart is choosing God daily, 
you're having quiet times, you're spending time with him, but you don't see any change, you don't see any fruit, keep after it. We don't do it just for the fruit. We do it because God is worth it. He's worthy. And so this also is the exact opposite of following your own ungodly desires. When you choose God, even when you don't see any change, you're choosing God for God's sake and not for the sake of your life being changed or anything like that. And if your heart is choosing it and you're seeing fruit and you're seeing change, praise God for it and keep choosing, keep making the right choice. Quiet times are all about intentionally having our minds changed. And it is possible, I said science is not opposed to faith. Well, here's a little bit of science for you science nerds. The brain can be changed. There's this thing called the neuroplasticity of the brain, which means that your nerve cells, they connect to each other over and over again when, when you're learning something or when you're doing something. And so when you're, when, you're le- when you're learning something new, you're forming new neural connections. And over time, those get stronger and stronger. So it's hard to form, it's hard, it's, hard to, it's hard to break bad habits and it's hard to form new habits because there's strong neural connections already in place. But it is possible through your choices to create new connections. So what that means practically is people who grumble, like in this in this passage today, people who grumble, it's possible that they live lives of gratitude, but that's a series of choices that they have to make from grumbling to gratitude. People whose words are arrogant and only about themselves, it's possible to change their lives, but they have to change their thinking first. And not just with new like self-help thoughts, but thoughts from God. Spiritual formation does not normally happen overnight. You have to remember, you have to choose what you set your mind on. Dallas Willard says, it is in our thoughts that the first movements toward the renovation of the heart occur. It's in our thoughts. It's in our thinking. And then he, he, he quotes Thomas Watson, a Puritan pastor in, from the 1600s, who said, the first fruit of love, if you want to love God, here it is, the first fruit of love It's the musing of the mind. He who is in love, his thoughts are ever on the object. Which means if you love someone, if you love something, you're going to think about it. You're going to find yourself continuing to think about it. By this, we may test our love to God. What are our thoughts most upon? Can we say we are ravished with delight when we think on God? Oh, how far are they from being lovers of God who scarcely ever think of God? It's in our thoughts that the first movements toward the renovation of the heart occur. So here's what I hear God saying through this passage. He's urging his people, the church, to think, to remember. The most important part of our mission is not what we do. Contending for the faith starts with love. Contending for the faith starts with loving the great missionary. It's loving God. And then we will never be more ready to contend for the faith than when our mind is increasingly fixed on him who contends for us. The most important part of our mission is loving the great missionary. Everything else flows from that. So to tie it into the big big major overarching themes of Jude, the ungodliness of the world, our, our call to contend in it, 
and that God is going to keep us till the end. Here's what, we, here's what we see. We live in an ungodly world of grumbling, people who speak arrogantly, people who follow their own desires, but we are called to contend by remembering that we also were enslaved to our own ungodliness. And if Christ hadn't freed us, if he hadn't freed me by his blood, I would still be in the same pattern of ungodliness. I'd still be headed towards the same judgment. But we remember that his spirit dwells in us and he, he gives us the words to speak. He gives us the words to contend for the faith that has been entrusted to us. And in the midst of our contention in an ungodly world, God promises that he'll keep us to the end. So as we conclude, I want to think again about the image of a good tree producing good fruit. And I want to leave you with my favorite line from John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So repentance, metanoia is the Greek word. It means change, changing of the mind. So produce fruit as your mind is continually being changed by God. If you keep with repentance, you will produce fruit. And you'll show that you are in fact a good tree. And in doing so, you'll bring glory to God and great joy to your own life. So let's pray. We want to use this time, God, to focus on remembering, remembering who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. We also remember our, our own ongoing need for you, that we need to keep repenting and keep at it. And we trust that you'll produce fruit. So God, fix our minds on you and help us as we set our minds on you.